Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Good. Good to see everybody. Those of you who are watching online, we want to say good morning to you as well. And before I jump into the message, just just uh, in way of an update, uh, as uh, a few steps the the Ridge Community Church has taken since uh, the recent the recent Roe v. Wade uh, decision that was made, and I know it's not finalized by any means. This is there was a, a national response this week, and this thing is still ongoing. But it doesn't mean that our church can't take some immediate steps. And so we've reached out to uh, our local Hope Pregnancy Center and our local Women's Crisis Center just to kind of touch base with them to see if there's any immediate needs that they have, any way that we can kind of step in and and help support them. And uh, they were very grateful for that. I was also very happy to hear that, that other organizations, other churches have reached out and, and uh, trying to, to, to just offer any kind of support. And so they were very thankful for that. And uh, they do have some projects coming up in the future that they're going to let us know about and how we can kind of step into that and, and be a part of what's going on there. But we're going to continue to stay in uh, communication with our local pregnancy center, our local women's crisis center, and just help out there and support there any way that we can. And as needs arise, we'll be bringing those to to each of you, okay? And then another step that we've taken the last couple of weeks is we've um, met with and are in contact with a couple of different faith-based fostering agencies that kind of serve us here in the North Georgia area. And it was just real exciting talking to these, uh, both of these uh, agencies as they love to partner with churches because there's so many different ways that God's people can support fostering. Sometimes when we hear fostering, we're like, oh, mm, I'm for it, but I don't know if that's for me. And, uh, and, but, but what's really neat about fostering is there's so many different ways that a church can impact and make a difference in the life of these children who need this special kind of care. And so we're, we're meeting with both of these organizations, kind of looking uh, into both of those to see which might be the, uh, the best fit for us and for them, so on and so forth. And so again, in the next few weeks, we're going to be able to come to you with hopefully some, some steps that we can take as a church to really support and step into uh, this issue of taking care of, of women in crisis and children in crisis and do what the Bible tells us to do. Amen. Amen. So thank you for that. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin, or we're going to be in verses 21 through 30. That's our focal passage this morning. But I want to go back. I want to step back one verse and and, and begin begin where we ended last week in verse 20 of Matthew 5, verse 20. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. He's speaking to his disciples and those who have gathered for the Sermon on the Mount. And he said this in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was a pretty, pretty uh, powerful statement then, and it's a shocking statement for us now. Jesus is basically saying, unless your goodness is greater than the goodness of those who are experts at following the law, unless you're better than them, you will not make it into the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus was really saying there is it doesn't matter how good you are at following the do's and the don'ts of the law. It doesn't matter how righteous you are in and of yourself, own your own. Something else is needed to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that other thing is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so that's how we, that's how we ended uh, last week. And then from that point in the Sermon on the Mount, all the way through the remainder of chapter five, what Jesus does is lay out about six practical ways that you and I today 
can live this kingdom life that he's calling us to, can live through his righteousness. <clears throat> and so today we're going to look at the first two of those teachings, and they are anger and lust. Anger and lust, and how we should deal with those two things as kingdom people. Okay, so let's jump in. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Jesus is teaching here. He says, You've heard it said, or you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. That's kind of in your face, isn't it? Jesus starts with this phrase that you have heard it said. And what he's doing there is drawing us back to the Old Testament law. Specifically, he's drawing us back to the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, specifically to the Sixth Commandment that says, you shall not murder, right? He says, you've heard it said of old that you shall not murder. He's referencing the Ten Commandments. And according to the Old Testament law, if someone committed murder... And then they, uh, they were then subject to judgment. And if they were found guilty, they would be put to death. And so this is a pretty clear law, right? I mean, when we read that, we don't have too many questions, right? Uh, we, we understand what it's saying. You shall not murder, okay? So we can kind of check the box on that and say, yeah, I haven't murdered anybody today. I'm doing good. I'm following this. And we kind of laugh at that, but that's really how the Pharisees were following the law. They were following it on this surface level. They were saying, yes, I haven't murdered anyone. I'm not guilty of this. I can check that box. Therefore, I am righteous. But Jesus takes this law to a whole new level, doesn't he? Jesus is not just concerned with the murderous act. We see that Jesus is more concerned with the murderous heart, Jesus takes this issue of anger and he brings it to the heart level. Jesus is warning us about allowing the attitude of anger to get a foot in the door in our heart. And so what is anger? Maybe some of you are here today or you're watching and you're wondering if you're dealing with anger or maybe you have been carrying some anger or some bitterness for a long time and you're just, you're unsure how to deal with it, okay? Well, we find some truth in this teaching. And so let's begin with a pretty simple definition of anger. And here it is. Anger is a strong feeling of displeasure and or hostility, usually caused by someone or something that offends, threatens, or hurts you in some way. In other words, we get angry when what we want to happen doesn't happen, okay? And maybe that's caused by a person who does or says something to us or against us and we experience anger, or, or, or maybe it's a set of circumstances that we can't really control. And because of these circumstances didn't go the way we wanted, we become angry, or we have this sense of displeasure or hostility. Okay, that's, that's anger. And the Bible has a lot to say about anger. Let me just read some, just a small portion of some of these passages. Proverbs 14, 29 says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper, a short temper, an explosive temper, exalts folly. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And then James 1, 19 through 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so the Bible has a lot to say about, about anger, but it's important for us to know what Jesus is not saying about anger in this passage. He's not saying that it's wrong to be angry. There are times when all of us experience anger, right? We, sometimes it's an emotion we just can't help. But there is a good anger, and then there is a bad anger. And the Bible actually has a couple of different words for anger. One of the words for anger in the Bible simply means that quick emotion that kind of rises up inside of you when something goes wrong. For instance, your, your, your kid um, spills red Gatorade on the carpet after you told him a hundred times not to drink red Gatorade. Okay, hypothetical, of course, that doesn't happen in my house ever. Um, but that quick burst of anger, when it happens, it just rises up. And, and, and maybe you, you, you kind of react for a moment, but, but quickly that anger is gone and you forget about it. Okay, that's, that's one type of anger the Bible talks about, just that quick emotional response. But then there's a, there's a different kind of anger that the Bible talks about, and it means a, a deep-rooted kind of anger that kind of settles inside of us. And we play the offense against us over and over and over again. And so this, this type of anger is not an emotional kind of anger. It becomes like a grudge we hold on to. And we get angrier and angrier. We become more bitter and more bitter to the point where we want to exact some kind of revenge or some kind of vengeance or we want something bad to happen to the person that, uh, that offended us. And that allows that anger to take root inside of it. It becomes a part of us. That, that's the kind of anger Jesus is talking about, a murderous type of anger. And so Jesus says, who, whoever holds on to a grudge, whoever has let anger take root in their heart, and whoever plays that offense over and over in their mind and plans retaliation or plans revenge or holds on to unforgiveness, they will be subject to judgment. And in that passage that we read just a moment ago, Jesus reveals that, that different levels of anger lead to different kinds of consequences. Notice first he said, when we get angry with a brother and sister and we don't let it go, we're liable to judgment, okay? That could be the, the judgment of God, right? Who, 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 who convicts us through the power of his Holy Spirit that, that that anger or that bitterness you're holding on to for what that person said to you or maybe said about you or those set of circumstances that are beyond your control and you're just angry about it, let that go. That, that's, that's, one, that's one level of judgment. But, but he goes even deeper. Next, he says that insulting a brother or sister, that's, that's actually taking revenge into our own hand. Jesus says makes us liable to the council. In that day and time, what he was referring to as the council was the Sanhedrin or a governing body, okay? Today, that, that could be a, a close friend, a brother or sister in Christ, maybe a, a pastor who, who sees that the, the actions that you've taken against someone who, who offended you and, and maybe come to you in love and say, you know, that's not the best way to handle that anger. There's a better way. And let me show you. But then Jesus takes it even deeper when he says, 
When you call your brother or sister a fool, it makes you liable to God and to hell itself. And what that refers to when, you, when we study that word fool, it means to come against someone as an enemy would come against their enemy. With the, with the idea to hurt them, to destroy them, to break them down. It's how, a, it's how someone who has no regard for others would, would behave towards someone. It actually is as if I consider you unsaved. And even if you are saved, because of your action, I have so much hatred towards you that I consider you not worthy to be saved. And I want to come against you in revenge to destroy you. And God says when anger, or Jesus said when anger gets that much control over you, where you're no longer interested in doing what's right or reconciliation, all you want is revenge or all you want is victory over that person or that situation. That is like emotional murder. If you give in to your anger, anger will eventually infect your heart and you'll become controlled by your anger, not controlled by the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, when we give in to our anger and now we're controlled by our emotions, that's when Jesus says we're in danger. We're in danger of judgment because we're no longer being led by the Holy Spirit at that point. We're no longer surrendered to the Spirit of God, but now we've surrendered to our anger. It's dangerous. It's serious. And so if you're taking notes, Jesus says this, or Jesus is not concerned with just our behavior. He's concerned with the condition of our heart, which is the source of our behavior, right? Jesus says what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So from the heart comes evil thoughts. From the heart comes evil actions. From the heart comes evil intentions. Jesus says all the evil things that come from within come from the heart, especially those things that are deep-rooted from anger. And those things that come out of us defile us. In other words, they corrupt us or they could eventually destroy us. And so Jesus gives two very practical examples of how we deal with anger or when we deal with anger. Okay, so verse 23 through 24, listen to this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there at the altar, you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so what Jesus is talking about here is the act of giving, okay? Uh, we, we often refer to that as the giving of tithes and, and offerings, and that's kind of what Jesus is talking about, that act of worship where we give from a heart of generosity. We open up our hands and we give back to God a portion of he, what he has given to us. And so Jesus is referencing that act of worship. If you are at the altar and you're about to give your offering to God, whatever that might be, but there in that moment, you remember that someone is offended by you. Or they have an offense against you. Jesus says, don't even give your offering, but rather set it aside and go and be reconciled. First, go and be reconciled to that brother or sister. Again, Jesus says that because he's more concerned with the heart of the giver than he is what they're giving. More concerned with the heart of the giver rather than what they're giving. And so, Take notes, because I think it's important that we need to remember something. Right relationships with others lead to righteous worship before God. And the opposite is true as well. Broken relationships can lead to broken worship before God. 
If we're holding anger in our heart, if we're holding on to bitterness, we got a grudge toward a brother or a sister, and we try to come before God and worship him in spirit and in truth or give an offering in spirit and in truth or whatever it might be, our anger becomes a roadblock or a hindrance to our worship before God. It's that serious. Our anger can actually hinder our worship before God. That's why we have to deal with it. And so he says, even if you're about to give an offering and you remember, don't give it. Go be reconciled. Go deal with that anger. Deal with that relationship. Then come back and give your offering. But Jesus gives a second example in verses 25 and 26. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus says, if you find yourself so at odds with someone that it's risen to the level where now you have to stand before a judge or a jury, or you have to stand before someone with authority to actually bring, um, to settle this dispute, Jesus says, don't do that. If possible, do everything you can to settle that issue before it gets to court, before it gets to that point. Jesus's point here is the longer that we wait to reconcile our anger with someone, the more severe the consequences can become. So Jesus says, do not wait. Don't let things keep escalating. Don't let things continue to to simmer, but rather act right now. Settle things right now because chances are the longer this thing drags out, the longer you allow your anger to take root in your heart, the greater the consequences can become. And he indicates that sometimes the consequences don't affect just you, but, but all those around you as well. So he says, deal with it now. You have anger inside of you. Deal with it now. Deal with it quickly. Don't even give an offering before you've dealt with your anger. Go straight to that person who has offense against you and make it right now, today. Don't wait until this thing escalates to to where now you have to stand before someone else to settle this dispute because it's gotten too big and the consequences are too strong. Take care of it now. And so this teaching actually draws us back to the Beatitudes where Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. You see, anger, especially a deep-rooted kind of anger, is the opposite of peace. But Jesus said a peacemaker is one who has found where true peace lies, that's Jesus, and then shown others where that peace may be found. And do you remember why Jesus said it's blessed to be a peacemaker? For they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. We are to be reconcilers. Reconcile means to bring back together. We are to be reconcilers because you and I were once reconciled by Christ. Matt Chandler said it like this. In essence, we are reconciled to reconcile. Jesus says, you want to live the kingdom life? You want to live this blessed life? Guard your heart from the anger that can root itself in you. But then he moves on to address a second issue, a second way that we live this kingdom life. One is by guarding our heart against anger, but the second one is guarding our heart against lust. Verse 27 and 28, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus is drawing us back to the Old Testament, specifically this time to the seventh commandment, Exodus 20, 14, do not commit adultery. And we know this commandment. This one's plain and simple. A married person is not to have a sexual relationship with anyone else other than their spouse. The Pharisees and the experts of the law in Jesus' day, they took this one very seriously. Remember the story of the woman who was caught in adultery in the Gospel of John? That story reveals how serious the Jews of Jesus' day viewed adultery. But again, this, this was viewed only on the surface level. A Pharisee would have said, you know what? I have not had sexual relations with anyone other than my spouse. Therefore, I am good. I am righteous. I am in good standing. But once again, Jesus takes this truth to a whole new level by saying, if anyone even looks at a woman with lustful intent, they've already committed adultery. Again, Jesus confronts this truth that he's less concerned with our behavior, our outward behavior, and he's more concerned what's going on in our heart. The sin of adultery is not just limited to the act of adultery. It includes the lust of the eyes. And that means what we, what we look at, what we, what we choose to gaze upon, what we allow our eyes to linger on, David Garvelin helps us define lust. He said this, lust is a strong sexual desire that is both negative and forbidden by scripture. Lust can be physical or emotional. Lust is completely self-centered, interested in only sexual gratification. Lust treats others as only things to be exploited. Now, if we're truthful, we know that everyone on some level deals with lust. But particularly, this seems to be a sin that men deal with most often on the heart level. And even godly men from scripture like King David and Job were susceptible to lust. That's why King David prayed for a pure heart in Psalm 51. That's why Job said in, in uh, Job 31, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. The, the danger of lust is that it always promises more than it delivers. It always promises more than it delivers. If you're taking notes, lust promises forbidden pleasure, but it delivers unforgettable pain. Many times we fall into this trap of lust because we, we believe for a moment there's going to be some kind of pleasure in that, and maybe there is, but what that results in many times is a lifetime of pain. For those of you who have had a relationship or, or a marriage that, that's been impacted or broken by the sin of lust. You know this is not a pain that disappears easily. This is not something that you can remember today and forget about tomorrow. It lingers. There are things that bring it up again and again and again, and it's something you're forced to wrestle with, maybe sometimes for the rest of your life. So that this very thing that promises this forbidden pleasure, this temporary moment of pleasure, actually delivers a lifetime of pain. That's why Jesus goes on to give us these two very powerful, very vivid illustrations that sometimes cause us to scratch our head a little bit, to wonder if this is really what he meant. I want us to look at these quickly. Verses 29, Jesus says, so if your right eye 
causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body thrown into hell. Some of you are like, what? Did Jesus really mean that literally? Did, did he really mean that I need to gouge my eye out? And this is how I want to answer it. The answer is yes, and even more than that. Here's what I mean. The idea that Jesus is communicating here is if there is anything, anything that's causing us to stumble repeatedly into sin, we're to do whatever it takes to remove that stumbling block. That's why Jesus uses such vivid language here, because it's that serious. But we also have to remember this. Jesus is talking about anger and lust beyond just the physical, and he's driving us down to the heart level. He's revealing that the real problem is not the lust of the, is not with the eyes, but it's with the heart, right? Lust doesn't live in the eyes. Lust lives where? In the heart. You, 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 can, you can be blind, and still struggle with lust in your heart. And so the, key, so, so the key to spiritual victory here over lust is to have a changed heart, is to have a, what the Bible calls a circumcised heart, a heart that's been transformed by the power of God. Because when we change on the heart level, it affects our behavior. It affects what we do. And so Jesus is taking anger and lust from this surface level, and he's making it a matter of the heart. Jesus is basically saying, do whatever it takes to give your heart completely and fully to God's spirit and let him have control. And then one more very vivid example that, God, uh, that Jesus gives, verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, guess what? Cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This warning is the same as the first. If your right hand becomes a stumbling block, it's better to take drastic measures to remove that stumbling block rather than your entire body be thrown into hell. In other words, it's better to experience a temporary loss of whatever that might be rather than eternal loss being eternally separated from God. Again, Jesus is addressing the heart. What the eyes see entice the heart. And what entices the heart directs the body, directs the hands. Our hands, our body, act in response to the attitude of our heart. That's why Jesus said back in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart. Do you remember that? Blessed are the pure in heart. Do you know why the pure in heart are blessed? Because they will be the ones that see God. That's what Jesus said. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If we pursue purity, if we, if we pursue the things that honor God, we will be included with those who will see God because we're pursuing him. But if we choose and, and, and make a decision that we will, we're going we're gonna to pursue the, the things of this world that are evil or sexual or the things that only please us, and we're going to disregard God's word, we're going to disregard the call of God, and we're going to do it again and again without remorse and without repentance, 
I'm telling you, will not be included with a pure in heart and those who will see God. That's why those who seek purity are those who are called blessed. If you're taking notes, we cannot build a life of purity on a foundation of lust. The path to purity requires a heart of purity. But the path to purity can be very challenging. We live in a very impure world. Listen to 1 John 2.16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. You and I live in a world that's constantly throwing things before us to see, to feel, to experience that are completely and utterly impure. That's why you and I have to be vigilant, vigilant in guarding our heart from things like anger and lust that have the ability to take root inside of us. We have to guard our eyes. We have to guard our hands. We have to guard our bodies from the impurity of this world. You and I have to take sin seriously. And there's a reason for that. I, I think John Owens probably said it best. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Jesus said, sin will be killing you and sending you to hell. If we do not repent, if we do not seek purity, if we do not reject the things of this world that, that are evil and, and that want to seek to take root inside of us, Jesus wants to, he wants to lead our behavior. He wants to guide our behavior. But more than that, he wants to lead and guide our heart. He wants to be in control of our heart. This morning, if you're holding on to anger or resentment, and there's something inside of you that's desiring some kind of revenge, or, or you just can't let go of this unforgiveness towards someone or something, if anger has deeply rooted itself inside of you, Jesus is telling you to deal with it right now. Don't wait another moment. He may even say, don't even worship me. Don't give me an offering until this is right. It's that important. Just as you were once reconciled by Christ, now you must reconcile with others through Christ. If you're dealing with anger, deal with it now. Likewise, if you're wrestling with lust, if it's, if it's found a way to deep root itself deeply in your heart, Jesus is saying, deal with it now. Remove that stumbling block, even if it costs you something, even if it costs you everything. Remove it. Now is the best time to deal with it. It's a short-term loss is better than an eternal loss. And here's the last thing I want to say. We must treasure Christ. We must take sin seriously, but we must treasure Christ above all things, especially all things of this world. There should be nothing in this world that we want or love more than Jesus Christ. When Christ is our treasure, guess what happens? Our heart will follow. Remember what the Bible says, where your treasure is, there too will be your heart. When Christ is our treasure, our heart follows. And where our heart goes, guess what? Our eyes follow our thoughts follow, our behavior follows, our body follows.
where our treasure is, there is our heart. Loving Christ, following Christ on that level may cost us something. It may cause some pain. It may cause some struggle. But anything that we, we lose in this world, anything that we have to give up that's a part of this world is far worth the glory and the peace that we receive in Jesus Christ. Church, whatever it takes. Remove the stumbling block. Uproot the anger. Turn it over to God. Let him deal with it. Be made new. Be renewed. And be set free. Just please stand to your feet.